What's your favourite track, Nathan? It, and what was it? Oh, Martin Joseph. Okay, I, do you know, although I wasn't here and I hadn't heard uh, Nathan speak, I just knew he would put, choose a Martin Joseph track. So um, that become uh, uh, relevant uh, a little bit uh, later on. So, you know, you know you're old in life when all the stuff you used to wear and chucked away is now back in fashion and you curse yourself because you did it. Uh, who's that happened to? You know, who's kind of, old? if only I hadn't thrown that stuff away, but you threw it away. And uh, I've been around long enough for a lot of stuff that I thought was great to go completely out of fashion and come back in fashion several times now. And uh, so I tell you that a little bit in terms of uh, the track uh, that I've chosen. And I'll tell you why. I've chosen it. On Saturday mornings on Radio 4, right, you can tell I've mentioned Radio 4 twice now in the service, I listen to Radio 4 a lot, and there's a thing called Saturday Live, I think it is, with Richard Coles, and uh, you know, Reverend Richard Coles on Saturday morning, and there's a thing called um, Inheritance Tracks, and there's a track that you inherit, and they have some kind of star talking about the track that they inherit from their childhood, and the track that they pass on. And I'd like to talk about a track that I've inherited and a track that I pass on. A track that I've inherited and a track that I pass on for a completely different reason. And speaking of old things, the track that I've inherited comes from this album. Now, some of you won't know what this is. It's not a book. It's, it's actually a long player album. And there it is. Um, I've not actually seen this for about 20 years, but this morning I, I dug through all these um, albums that I've been going to throw away for years, and Cornelia always says, don't throw them away, don't throw them away, they come back in fashion. Well, here it is. I don't know if it's back in fashion, uh, but here it is, and it's somebody called Larry Norman. And Larry Norman was once well-known. You all go, who's he? Larry Norman was once at, well, Larry Norman died a few years ago. That's how serious this is. And um, uh, Larry Norman uh, was once the best known, I think, uh, Christian singer in the Western world. He sung with the Beatles and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, he made several albums. And I'd like to play you a track off this album. But you're probably thinking, what a sad old bloke. This, this guy is at the front. So I just want to show you this. It was good that we didn't chuck those albums away because as I found this album, the one that I found on top of it is this one. This is by David Bowie, Hunky Dory. How much is that worth? I am rich and I didn't know. <laughs> I just found that this morning. That must be worth a bubble too, mustn't it? This, however, is probably not. So <laughs> this is a track... Um, from, um, from that album. Um, but before we listen to the track, I'd like to show you this. Can you see that? Jesus Christ, Solid Rock, The Return of Christ by David Wilkerson. That is the first Christian book I ever read. I read that when I was 14. I'd just become a Christian, and I was asked to give a talk at my youth group. And... I had never given a talk to anyone about anything before. And having just become a Christian, 
I was pretty aware that Jesus was probably coming back very soon. You know, that kind of, Jesus is coming, look busy, and all that kind of stuff. I knew that Jesus was coming back very soon, and so I don't know how I got hold of this book, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, Solid Rock, The Return of Christ, but I got hold of this book, and I read it from cover to cover, and I made extensive notes on it, and I gave a talk at my youth group, Holmesdale Road Baptist Church, at the one end of the palace ground on a Saturday night. And I'd, I'd worked on this talk all week. And the whole talk took about two minutes, and then I dried up. You probably wish I could return to those days. <laughs> and um, this book features very, very heavily this number, 666. Because, like so many Christians, when I first became a Christian, I believed that Jesus was coming very soon, and I knew it all had something to do with the number 666 from the Bible. And I'd heard spooky stories about the number 666. And all that was fueled by this track. So I'd like to play it to you now. And I put the lyrics up here so that you can follow them. There it is, Larry Norman and uh, 666. Yeah, it's working, isn't it? And, uh, of course, all of that stuff hasn't gone away because I guess some of you may have even read this book or one of the books in this series, Left Behind, a novel of the Earth's last days, Tim LaHale. Tim LaHale has become the best-selling Christian author in the world for publishing books, all based on the same theology that drove um, Larry Norman's song, the theology of 666. Don't we all know or haven't we heard a little bit about how in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, there's a beast, somebody with the name, the number 666, and that person is eventually going to take over earth. Things are getting bad. Politics has broken down in our country. Politics is breaking down in America. Politics is breaking down around the West. And that's a sure sign of 666. That's a sure sign of the Antichrist, the Antichrist number being 666. This book, of course, and a whole series of books like it, and there was a film as well, I'm sure that uh, lots of you are fully versed in this kind of thing, simply says that things are going to get worse and worse. And then, and then, at the critical moment, those people who are true followers of Jesus are going to be snatched away. As the beast takes over, as 666 takes over, as life on planet Earth gets more and more miserable, eventually Jesus will return from the sky and we will be caught up to meet him and we'll be caught away. That's what I grew up on. That's the message of this album to me. Get busy. I, of course, becoming a Christian, totally invested my life in the urgent business of telling as many people as I could about Jesus as fast as possible because everybody knew that Jesus was coming soon and nobody wanted to be left behind. You had to be on your watch out for the signs of the Antichrist, the signs of the beast, 666. That is what I inherited. That is the theology that drives, I think, so much of what goes on in churches still today. 
Look busy because Jesus is coming. True believers are going to be uh, are taken away. They call it raptured. Some of you will know that word. They're going to be planes that are being flown by Christians and their pilots are going to be snatched away and everybody else on the plane is going to crash into the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. I'm sure some of you have seen those depictions in films and they've certainly made this man uh, very famous. So what I'd like to do is talk about why that track that I inherited, which inspired me at the time, still inspires me for a completely different reason. And I'd like to play you another version of the track at the end. And it's because of this word, soteriology. I'd like to give you an understanding of what soteriology actually is. Soteriology is a, a noun, and as you can see there, it's a doctrine, or the doctrine it says there. In actual fact, that's wrong. That's the Oxford Dictionary for you. I just uh, uh, took it from Google from the Oxford Dictionary, but it's wrong. Because it, it, a soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. And it's a word that's entered our language since the mid-19th century, and it comes from... Uh, soteria, which means salvation in Greek, and the English word ology, biology, etc., etc. It's the study of a doctrine of salvation. And you may think that Christianity is just filled with those doctrines. And so, you know, my Larry Norman album, it tells me that I've got to be ready. In fact, Larry Norman has another song on this album, uh, which is called uh, Be Ready. You've got to be ready for Jesus to come again. It's going to get bad, 666, but Jesus will return. And you may say to yourself, well, Christians have a method of salvation. And they're the only ones that are interested in that, except for Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and other religious people. Because that word doctrine of salvation, we, when we read the word doctrine, we think about religion. We think religiously. But in actual fact, it's not that way at all. There are various soteriologies on display in our society, and everyone in our society has bought at least one of them. We all believe in doctrines of salvation. We really do. Let me lead you through some of the other doctrines of salvation that are on offer this weekend in our country. The first, of course, is this. Capitalism. This is the Oxford Dictionary again. An economic and political system in which a country and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. Capitalism. Offering salvation. You are, of course, in the end, what you own. You are, of course, in the end, what you have. You are worth exactly the amount in your bank account, the house you live in, the car you drive, the clothes you have. You have to be in control. It is a doctrine of salvation. And it's the doctrine, of course, that the world has bought into, the West has bought into, indeed most of the world now. We are saved because we have things. Here's an alternative doctrine of salvation. Communism. Karl Marx, buried in London, 
writes a book and he says, no, capitalism can't be the way. There's got to be an alternative doctrine of salvation, a way of finding fulfillment and wholeness which isn't about ownership. And of course, he writes about communism, a theory or system of, of social organization in which all property is owned by the community and each person contributes and receives according to their ability or needs. But the problem is that that doctrine of salvation didn't really work. It broke down. The disciples of Marx, Stalin and Lenin fell out with one another and Trotsky. And actually what was produced under Stalin's version of Marx's teaching was more repressive. It offered salvation to a few, not life beyond death, but life here because they had ownership and power and robbed others. We are addicted to doctrines of salvation. You'll see in these first two examples I've shown you that they're not about life beyond this life, they're about life here. And you probably think, no, Christianity is a doctrine of salvation about life beyond death. That's where you're wrong. The Bible never says that Christianity is a doctrine of salvation about life beyond death. It says it's a doctrine of salvation about life here and now. It's about real life right here, right now, where you are. Christianity, the teaching of Jesus offers a way of being fully whole right here and right now and promises things beyond this life as well or signposts them. But the majority of the teaching of the Bible, of Paul, of Jesus himself, is not about life beyond this life. It's about life here and now, fullness of life, richness of relationships. And so communism and consumerism uh, 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 communism and capitalism, they speak of the same things, which leads us on to this one. Consumerism. The protection or promotion of the interests of consumers. That's what it says in the Oxford Dictionary. Of course, we know that it's much more than that. It's an addiction. Consumerism is the need to have what you see in the window or what you see online, what you see on Amazon. I've got to have that watch. I've got to have those shoes. I've got to have that dress. I've got to have that car. I've got to have that thing. I've got to have. Consumerism is a doctrine of salvation and it's one that our nation buys into. It's one that our world buys into. But it's one that leaves as many people out as it takes with it. We voted for Brexit. America voted for Donald Trump. There'd be many of us here who'd have questions about all of those things. But the truth is, these aren't new things. They're because the doctrine of consumerism and the doctrine of capitalism that offers salvation, offers salvation to some but leaves out the many. And of course, a long time before Britain voted for Brexit or America voted for Trump, there were many who were left out and who were forgotten, and no one noticed. No one noticed that the doctrine offering salvation in society was only offering it to some. It was for the wealthy, the well-off, the elites, those who were in, but it left so many out. I remember visiting America just before Donald Trump was elected, and again just uh, two or three weeks afterwards, 
and driving through uh, town after town in the States and looking at the poverty in which people lived and thinking, if I lived here, I'd vote for something radical. Because nothing that's been on offer up until this date has brought anything of prosperity to me. These are doctrines of salvation. I'd like to talk about another one, the Enlightenment. I don't know if you know what the Enlightenment is, but there's the definition from the Oxford Dictionary. A European intellectual movement of the late 17th and 18th and the whole of the 18th century, emphasizing reason and individualism rather than tradition. What the Enlightenment was, was a moving away from the doctrine of salvation offered by Christianity and other religions. It said, actually, put your trust in science. Put your trust in what's rational. Don't put your trust in emotion or superstition or religion or beliefs anymore. You need to put your trust in science and in technology. And we have the sciences and we have the technologies to make the world a much better place. And so it was that the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, which began in Germany, rushed on. Everything that you could measure, everything that you could do the maths on was what mattered. Everything else didn't matter. We still have the leftovers of that in our society all the time, don't we? People who say, it's only what you can measure, it's only science that counts. Richard Dawkins, of course, would be a leftover of Enlightenment. All that matters is the hard science of things. But the truth is, again, that the Enlightenment has left people hungry and it's left people empty. Because the world has worked out that we're not just a collection of cells and DNA. The world's worked out that the questions we really want to ask are much deeper than all of those things. Here's another one. Empire. It's always been on display. Oxford Dictionary. An extensive group of states and countries ruled over by a single monarch, an oligarchy, or a sovereign state. The British Empire. The American Empire. The Western Empire, now waning. We are, for sure, living through a change, a historic change. Well, what we've grown up believing will no longer be true in 50 years. The West and its dominance is moving. It's changing. The old empires are falling and new ones are arising. But there's always been the concept of empire. The words that we prayed through and Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 were written into empire. The Roman Empire, under which Jesus lived, and into which Paul wrote these words, was probably um, the biggest and most offensive empire that the world had seen until that date. The Roman Empire was an extraordinary thing. You know that Julius Caesar uh, was the last uh, leader of the Republic, the Senate, just based on the, the pretty uh, much the same political system as America has now with the Senate, that, the House of Representatives, 100 people chosen, and they were there to represent the people and lead the people forward. And Julius Caesar is, uh, is assassinated and the Republic falls and his, um, his adopted son, uh, who we call uh, Caesar Augustus, um, uh, uh, he 
becomes the emperor and he leads uh, Rome forward into an imperial state where the emperor has all power. And after Augustus, who dies when Jesus is a teenager, Tiberius then becomes uh, 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 the emperor. And then on and on through the life of Paul, a guy called Claudius, remember him from history. And then he dies in uh, 54 and uh, in in 55, I was born in 1955, in 55, exactly 1900 years before I was born, Nero became the emperor of Rome. And um, all of that is what the New Testament is written into. We look at this cross on this wall. Rome was a killing machine. Rome slaughtered endless people on crosses. Crucifixion was the preferred form of death uh, that Rome inflicted on all of its enemies that weren't its citizens. If you were a citizen of Rome and you were put to death, which was very rare, there were other ways that Rome chose. But the cross was the way in which Rome dealt with all its slaves, all of the countries it took over, every rebel anyone who didn't matter. Stories are told, uh, many stories are told, about 10,000 people being crucified in a single day. 20,000 people being crucified in a single day. Rome crucified people. And to die in the death of crucifixion was particularly humiliating. It was particularly humiliating because you would be stripped naked Um, In the uh, uh, pictures that we have of Jesus dying on the cross, there's always some loincloth that's put on him. That was kind of slapped on there by artists centuries later uh, to, uh, to cover up. But the victim of crucifixion would be stripped naked and they would be nailed to the cross. They would die in the end of asphyxiation. Uh, Roman soldiers would stand around and if the whole thing was going on too long, they would break uh, the the arms and the legs of the victim of crucifixion so they couldn't pull themselves up to breathe anymore. They'd often pierce at their side. Sometimes they would light a bonfire underneath the foot of a cross so that the smoke would asphyxiate the person dying on the cross. As town after town was taken over by the Romans, they'd erect hundreds of crosses on a regular basis and they'd nail people to these crosses. The cross was like the swastika. That's what I want you to understand. If we lived under the empire of Rome with their system of salvation, which basically went like this, join us and you will have security and peace. In fact, that was the message of every emperor. It was the message of Caesar Augustus in Jesus' time. Peace and security, I bring you good news. The term gospel isn't a Christian term. It's the term that was used by the Romans. They said, join us. Receive our good news. Receive peace. Receive security. But if you don't, you get one of these. The cross was the equivalent of a swastika. When you see a swastika, if we had a swastika on this wall right now, it would breathe horror 
into each person. If we were an audience under the Roman Empire looking at that cross, it would breathe horror into us. So how come that system of salvation, that system of empire has been utterly transformed in this way? These words from Paul. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very, very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and I've put it in bold letters, By becoming obedient to death. And Paul says, you see the exclamation mark, even death on a cross. Now here is the extraordinary achievement of the first churches. They turned a swastika. They turned a cross that stood for horror and death and persecution and oppression. They turned all that round so that now when you look at that cross... You see grace, and you see love, and you see forgiveness, and you see hope, and you see mercy. How did that happen? It happened because a group of ordinary people believed in a system of salvation that was about laying down your life and serving others because that's how you found wholeness. We've come to a strange point in 21st century life. Modernity is dead. You know, trust in science. Trust in knowledge. That will save you. Trust in things. Buy stuff. Wear the right stuff. Be seen with the right people. That will save you. I think we all know that that sucks. If we don't know it, the rest of the world does. We yearn for a capitalism that's more compassionate, but there isn't a capitalism that's more compassionate. The bottom line is always the bottom line. I need to have more than you have. So people begin searching for a different um, story, a different narrative, a different system of salvation. And so we come up with this term that we use all the time, postmodernism. We decided that modernism doesn't work, so we're now into postmodernism. But what is postmodernism? It's nothing. All it says is it's postmodernity. Modernity didn't work. It doesn't offer us what we want. Capitalism doesn't work. Consumerism doesn't work. Empire doesn't work. No, none of this works. So we need something post it, and we call it postmodernity. What is it? I put it to you that the church has a wonderful opportunity. I think there are three things that everyone's looking for. I think the first is identity, because you recognize that in yourself. You want to know who you are and where you fit in. You want to know, do you matter? Do you matter to anyone? Every kid on the street wants to know, do they matter? Every kid that Tom works with, the kids that get into gangs that end up in St. Thomas's, they want to know, do they matter? Every kid that gets radicalized wants to know, do I matter to anyone, anywhere? Every person who sits at home, lonely now, wants to know, do I matter to anyone? That's what people search for. 
They're fed up with television adverts. They're fed up with those adverts you have to watch before you watch any YouTube video. They're fed up with having stuff advertised to them constantly. They want to know, do I matter? A sense of identity. The second one is a sense of purpose. If you disagree with this, come talk to me afterwards. But I think everybody is looking for identity and they're looking for purpose. I need to know who I am and I need to know what I'm here for, how I fit in. What's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of this next week? Am I just living it out till I get to next weekend so I can show up in another church and sit through some more talks? What's the purpose of my life? What am I doing with these precious moments? I don't know how many I have. How am I going to invest them? And I think the third thing everybody's looking for is community, belonging. They want to belong. They want to matter to someone else. That's what everybody searches for. Identity, purpose, community. And I believe that this church can offer those things. I believe that what we perhaps sometimes take for granted is the most wonderful thing. It is community. Community is tough. Community is hard. The only thing in life, as you've heard me say before, harder than being in community, though, is not being in a community. To be in a community, to surrender yourself to a community, to serve in that community. There is only one way in life to find fulfillment. It is through service. That is the message of this hymn. And so it was with that message of belonging, of sharing, of having all things in common, of laying down their lives for one another, of loving others as they love themselves, that those early Christians transformed the world's swastika into the world's sign of grace. So let's read those last verses. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who was claiming to be Lord when Paul wrote these words? Claudius. Claudius was claiming to be Lord. The cult of emperor worship was the fastest growing religion in Rome. Everybody worshipped the emperor. They used all the social media of the day to get out the message that they were gods. The social media of the day being statues and coins. You put your head on the coin and you put your statue in every town and you announced that you were God and that you were Lord. Trust me, I bring you good news, said Augustus. Trust me, I bring you good news, said Tiberius. Trust me, I bring you good news, said Claudius. Trust me, I bring you good news, said Nero. Each of the emperors said, I am God, trust me, follow me. Rome offers you security. We are the system of salvation. And Paul says this, because Jesus died on a cross and served, therefore God exhorted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above the name of Claudius. Gave that at the name of Jesus, not Claudius, not the emperor, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, you know the word Christ simply means 
uh, it means Messiah and Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord, not Claudius, not the emperor, not the empire. Jesus is Lord. So all these years later, I've come to a new understanding. The new understanding is about what apocalyptic is. Apocalyptic isn't, as, um, as in Tim LaHaye's book, a study of the end of the world. This is um, Oxford Dictionary again. Describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world. That is the most ridiculous description of apocalyptic I've ever seen. And it's published by Oxford University. Whoever wrote that should be ashamed of themselves. They need to go back to school. Um, apocalyptic does, isn't the study of the end of the world. That's what Larry Norman taught me. Larry Norman taught me the world's ending soon. Get your life sorted. No, apocalyptic writing, if you read it, I won't go on about this, but if you read apocalyptic in the New Testament, when Jesus says one will be taken, one will be left, um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, it's a veiled way of talking about life here and now. It's about talking about life here and now and its threats and its pressures. Its pressures. So this, uh, this, uh, this track that I learned was about get ready because there's a man called 6-6 coming and he's going to bring the world to an end but Jesus will come and you'll get out of here as a kind of escape thing. I now see completely differently. I know that we live with threats all around us. We live with those who offer us, who claim to be God. Do you know that God's number is seven? Throughout the Bible, God's number is always seven. It's the number of completeness. And this man's number is six, six, six. It's always a six. In our society around us, we see lots that pretends to be God, that offers us salvation, but it's always a six, a six, a six, a six. And on this morning, you're called to the opportunity to put your trust in Christ and to make him the center of your life. I'd like to finish by, um, this is why I asked Nathan earlier, Martin Joseph thought that Larry Norman's song was so brilliant, he re-recorded it. So we're going to listen, as we close, to Martin Joseph's rendition of 666. And as you read the words again, because I'll put them up, I want to ask you to ask questions of these lyrics. What is it that's on offer in our society that offers you to worship it? And are you going to choose that, or are you going to choose to the walk the way of Christ? Let's listen to the track again. As we close, the question is simply this. Who plays 666 for you? That's what the Bible's saying. Who's playing 666 in your ear? Who's saying, trust me, follow me? What takes the place of God in your life? What might take the place of God in your life this week? What are you seduced by? What number six pretends to be a number seven? And will you choose this way, the way of Christ, the way of the cross? This week, all of this high theology has to play out in our lives. Are you going to choose the way of Jesus or be seduced by 666, full of all sorts of promises? Let's pray and then Mark is going to come and lead us as we sing.
What is likely to seduce you this week? What do you find most attractive? What pulls you its way? What doctrine of salvation do you tend to find yourself trusting? What are you pulled to put your belief and trust in that's not God? That in the end is just a number 666 and never 7. Look at the cross. Will you choose in your relationships and your affairs and the handling of your bank account and your buying and your selling and your planning and your dealing and your career and your decision making and your relationships this week to choose the cross? Number seven, not number six. Lord, forgive us for the times we've been seduced by different doctrines of salvation. We give ourselves back to you, to serve you, who went to the cross for us and has brought grace to our lives. Amen.